Bonjour, hi, I'm Pascal Auclair. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. J'espère que cet enseignement vous sera aidant. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed. Vous pouvez me soutenir en cliquant sur le bouton sous ma photo. Your support is greatly appreciated. Merci. There's a story from the time of the Buddha that I really like. I often tell it just because I like it. <laughs> and so, but uh, no, it's not true. It's because I, I think it, uh, it's, uh, it's a powerful story. Was, you'll see what you think of it. So, uh, imagine you would uh, find your place somewhere like here, around here, and somebody would tell you, oh, the Buddha is around. You know, you could you could go and visit him tonight, or her, depending on which Buddha it is. If there's a, a new Buddha, hopefully, would be a, of a different gender to break the pattern. <laughs> um, but imagine you had the chance to go see the Buddha for a few... Um, you know, maybe they'd say, oh, he's by the fire down there. You know, you can go and chat with the Buddha for a few minutes. You know. What um, what would be a, maybe a question you would bring to the Buddha? He said, oh, there's actually many people who want to see him, so just walk down, just stay a few minutes, you know, a couple of minutes. If you want, ask him a little something. What would you ask extremely wise being. And so Rohitasa apparently has this chance. Actually in my mind Rohitasa is um, is non-conforming in terms of gender. So they 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 uh, they are who they are. They are they don't they don't do the binary thing in terms of gender. And uh, it's fun. I like that character. Uh, I mean, I know it's not just fun, but I like that there's a character like this in the story. That's how I perceive them, anyway. So, uh, Ruitasa has a, a lot of personality. They are um, very curious and uh, self-confident and... Uh, yeah, kind of gutsy, courageous, playful. Made me th- they make me think of maybe a character like Puck in the Shakespeare's um, Is it The Tempest or the yeah. Midsummer Night Dream? Uh, and uh, so they they uh, find themselves uh, close to the Buddha, so they. The question they come up with is uh, surprising. So Rohitasa, who knows this story? <laughs> so uh, Rohitasa asks the Buddha, "Is it possible to reach the end of the world by traveling 
and by foot. Would that have been your question? (laughs) (laughs) And the Buddha said, says, um, no, Rohitasa, it's it's not possible to reach the end of the world by traveling or by traveling by foot. It's not possible. And Rohitasa says, wow, so it's not possible by traveling to reach the end of the world. This is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Your, your answer is so clear and simple. <laughs> I tried. Like I tried. I walked and walked. And, you know, I'm in good shape. And I walked and walked. And I can... And in the story, Ruitasa says, with one step, you know, I can cross from the Eastern Ocean to the Western Ocean. So I can walk. And I walked and walked and I never stopped. Actually, I did stop. That's in the text. I never stopped. Actually, yes, I did stop a little bit just to pee and (laughs) defecate and to eat a little bit and rest a little bit. But basically, I was walking. And I never did reach the end of the world. And, you know, and I ask you and you're like, no, you can't reach the end of the world by traveling. And then the Buddha said, says, no, Rohitasa, it's not possible by uh, walking or traveling to reach the end of the world. But I also say that it's not possible to reach the end of confusion or stress or suffering without reaching the end of the world. And Rohitasa, the world, the birth of the world, the cause of the world, the end of the world, the path, to the end of the world, it's here, in this fathom long body, with its senses, and mind, and perceptions. It's here. And then Ruitasa comes back from the fire. That's the exchange. And I like that story because to me it talks about what we're doing here. We're sitting here and we're paying attention. And in here, in this fathom long body, what does it mean fathom? It means, I think it means like this and this when you're swimming, or the length of a body. Something like this, I was told. Fathom long. It's an all kind of measurement. So am I right? Yeah, fathom. Yeah. Oh, so it's the. <laughs> I had a little twist in there with the accent. Okay. So in this body is the creation of the world, and you can use as a synonymous in this uh, in the Buddhist context when we say the world, we could say also confusion. So. The birth of confusion, the birth of suffering, the cause of suffering, it's, it's all in here. The end of it also, it's in here, just here. And this is what we do here. We come here for a few days and we sit within this fathom long body, fathom long body, and we pay attention to see 
how arises the world of despair, of moi, of, do you follow a bit? And so we're really following the instructions of the Buddha. It's in here, sit here, pay attention. You'll notice how the mind and the perceptions and through the senses you'll create misery for yourself or liberation, uh, beauty, um, a love that is... uh, benevolence that is uh, limitless that is um, one of the uh, there's a word for it the Brahma Viharas they're known as the uh, unponderables or something like the un, un like you cannot actually f- fathom <laughs> the power of these qualities how far they can reach, limitless. They can hold a limitless amount of of beings. There's no, the body said, the Buddha said, you can't actually know how many beings can be held in compassion or benevolence. That's the capacity of the mind when it's cultivated. Anyway, it's all in here. And so, what we do when we come here is we, uh, and I'll talk now a little bit about the arc of practice as I understand it, and you'll see if you're recognizing something in there. So we come to retreat, or we come to this practice, and we start paying attention. We're told about mindfulness, what it, what it is, and so, and then after it's for us to find our way into it, what is the felt sense of it, what is the experience of it, not the definition of it, like a non-judgmental, non-coercive, non-violent, curious, caring, uh, refined attention. So we find our way into this. And uh, what it allows to happen, so this arc of practice, is that we first we come with our ideas of how it is, how it should be, how I want it to be, expectations, preconceived ideas, etc. <coughs> Beliefs, loads, loads of uh, uh, hidden beliefs, unconscious beliefs, investments, uh, so confusion in one word. And we start paying attention and we get closer to experience as it is, so we start to feel the cold instead of the opinion about the cold. We start to experience uh, autumn instead of I- the idea. I love uh, fall. I love fall. It's just it's my favorite <laughs> season. You know. So okay, nice, sweet. What is the experience of it? You know. And so it becomes very specific. Yeah. And uh, things starts to stand out specifically. I don't know if you've had this experience. Suddenly, uh, the taste of, you know, something, you look at something and you're like, oh, it must taste like this. And then you taste it. And the taste is this particular thing. Or you come with your idea of, med- of meditation retreat. Bliss. Moi, sitting <laughs> with my hair. 
you know, in the wind, on top of Mount Pinnacle, you know, in bliss, you know, and I come here, and suddenly it gets really specific, there's this guy who keeps talking, <laughs> that keeps, uh, you know, bugging you so you can't be in your fantasies and ideas. <laughs> Or you're sitting in a body that is not the one you had envisioned <laughs> when you signed a few months ago. You know, <laughs> the reality hits you of the experiences of the body, and uh, or you get to taste beyond the idea you had of it. Uh, you know, calm. What it is? What is this experience of calm? And you're surprised that it actually drives. Uh, leads you to boredom. <laughs> when you thought it was going to lead you to a great peace, you're like, there's nothing happening. There's nothing happening. Something should be happening. What am I doing wrong? Nothing's happening. Like, well, that, honey, might be peace. <laughs> but it takes a refined mind to recognize it. <laughs> it's hard to sustain peace. You know, we say we want peace, but we might prefer trouble. <laughs> It's more, it's more juicy. <laughs> I'm joking a bit, but it gets really specific. The smells, the, and we actually, part of it, like we talked about today, we being me, maybe, uh, as it was talked about today, that we actually learn to recognize specifically what a thought is. You know, this is a thought. As opposed to me being born in confusion in that story, you know, and believing it, that it's actually, oh, there's actually thinking that is happening. You know? We learn to sp feel specifically different types of emotions. Like, we actually get to soak in them. No? One teacher that I teach with sometimes, uh, Re Rebecca Bracha, she has a talk on, uh, I don't know how, up to what she is, but something like 14 or maybe 13, would be more fitting, 13 kinds of fears, you know. Because she said, I've actually sat in all these fears, and I can talk about them because I know them specifically. The paralyzing one, the panicky one, the undertone one, the, you know, I know many kinds of fears. Uh, and so we get very specific here, we come closer to the experience of uh, the different mind states, the beautiful ones, the troubling ones. Uh, and things start to stand out, and so people will report this, oh, I saw a leaf fall, you know? So it's not generic, it's not like leaf falling, you know? It's that leaf falling, I was there for it, you know, I got touched by it. Or that flower uh, beginning to die, or that insect in the window pane, you know? I was actually there for it, I was... You see what I mean? By paying attention, we get sensitive, we get closer to experience, get specific. And at some point, uh, when the mind stabilizes, and we actually can stay, instead of, you know, grab with an opinion, I love, I want, or I don't like, this is not what I wanted to experience, but oh, it's like this, it's like this. Shame, wow, feels like this anticipation feels like this whatever it, 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 it oh feeling like this like the perce oh, perceiving things in the way that it's never going to end feels like this 
perceiving things as, oh my God, it's going way too quickly. feels like this. There are different worlds that we inhabit. So we see the birth of these worlds, you know, with the arising and uh, uh, passing away instruction of the Buddha and the absence of presence. We actually start to see what he talks about to Rohitasa. Sit here and you'll see the birth of the world, you know, and the end of the world. You'll see these different worlds appearing and disappearing. You see, as you sit here, there's just, you know, this quietness, this light, this breathing, and then suddenly, I don't know what, moi and my old age dying, you know, some, some kind of like production of the mind. And there's this huge production of the mind of moi, once I'm awakened, and teaching, you know, or moi, once I'm something. Have you done that? But it's, on, it's only the kind of stuff that happens to moi. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. So there's the world that is created, inhabited, and then if we stay around long enough and we remind, remember mindfulness, at some point we'll see the crumbling of that world. You know, where, oops, I'm just back here. There's just this body sitting here. And there was a world that was born, that was lived in, where we suffered or experienced glamour <laughs> and then it vanishes again. Yeah. So that's maybe partly what the Buddha was talking about to Rohitasa. Sit here, sit there and notice how world arises. Pass. And so we start to see this. And so we go at some point from the specificity of the experience to their uh, universal characteristics. It's very classic teaching. I keep bringing this back because that's the heart of what's happening in a retreat. It's suddenly, it's not so much the taste, the specific taste of that soup. It's not that specific taste. It's the fact that taste arises and vanish. This is what becomes touching. Wow. It arose and passed. I talked about this probably from the beginning of the retreat. And so, we do this with every phenomenon, every one of them, we'll get, see them arise and pass. So we'll see this with intention, the intention to stand will arise, or scratch will arise, and will pass, it will disappear. The sensations will do that. There's nothing that won't do that, actually. Even... If you think, uh, yeah, but the witness, the, the, the observer, remains. Well, in Buddhist, uh, certainly one tradition of Buddhism, it says, if you pay close attention, you'll see it appear and disappear. So the observer was observing you walk earlier today. Where is that observer? It arose with the walking and it died with the walking. Now there's another observing or another con consciousness. Like in this exercise here, try to be conscious of the sound before or after the sound.
the consciousness of bell sound arose with bell. It couldn't arise. It's co-arising. It's co-dependent. They co-arise. The consciousness of sound arises with sound. The con- of bell, the consciousness of Vitamix <laughs> blender arises with the sound of the Vitamix blender and dies with it. And what we do, and what we do is we uh, we can recognize to a certain degree. Oh yeah, I do agree. The sound of the bell arose and passed. The sound of the of the blender arose and passed. But moi, I stay. Yeah. And so, in the becoming more and more aware, we're actually starting to question that that assumption. That maybe is just another assumption. And we can see that, wow, knowledge, experience of something arise with the something and disappears with it. And that's quite touching. It's a very different way to hold reality. And we start noticing. It's so interesting to watch how the sense of self attaches itself to the next thing, the next thing. A little bit like a monkey in the jungle in the children's book. You know? It goes like this. It attaches itself to something, to something, to something, and it drops it. Like, uh, I like that example. It makes me laugh. You know, at the meal, you grab your plate and you put all your different uh, pieces of the meal in the plate. You go sit. And then you think, oh, you know, I forgot... I'd like to have something to drink. So you leave your plate there and you go get your um, drink. And when you come back, I'm sitting there (laughs) eating. And you're like, this is my plate. You know, and then trouble ensues, you know. He has my plate, he's he's crazy. I I thought he was crazy, but now it's confirmed. (laughs) What am I doing? We're in silence. You know, it's like, oh my God, poor him, or poor him, or crazy him, or, you know, and it's like, my pl- it's all around my plate, yeah? And, uh, okay, so let's say uh, this didn't happen, you just come back and your plate is there, <laughs> safe. Nobody took it, Pascal is not around, you're safe. <laughs> so you go, you eat your food, your plate, you're, you eat your food, and then you leave, and you go for a walk up in the forest, and suddenly appears Pascal again. <laughs> he's like, hey, here's your plate, here's your plate, that he grabbed from the dirty dishes, you know, and you're like, this is not my plate, this is a plate, this is not mine. Do you see this? How this suddenly, it's not yours anymore. You had attached yourself to it for a little while, and then suddenly you're something else, but now you're in my path, you know, I'm doing my back and forth here now, and you're in my path. <laughs> you know? So you've attached yourself to this. And later you'll attach yourself to an opinion. I don't agree with that. He's right, I'm wrong. He's wrong, I'm right. <laughs> you know, and you'll have that opinion. And later you'll have a ha-ha moment, and your opinion will change. And then you'll, you'll grab that opinion. It's the opposite one, but it's, it doesn't mind. It's mine, you know. And, you know, and in this way you were the one who had this body earlier on in your 
early 20s, and now you're stuck with that one. <laughs> <laughs> but you're attached to it anyway. All the cells have changed, all the, but it's yours, you know. And it's, your, and it's also your pleasure. And if somebody s- starts breathing loudly in your concentrated mind, while you're concentrated, you know, they'll burst your pleasure bubble, you know, and you'll hold on to that pleasure. Even it's gone. It's not even there anymore. But you can't resent, resent them for ten years, you know. I was having fun that night, and you broke my pleasure. It was my pleasure that you burst, you know. Do you see this? So it attaches itself. I'm trying to find many different experiences, you know, emotions, you know, it's my, you know, whatever it is, you know, my pride or my generosity, it's my generosity, you know. And here, what we're trying to do, what we're doing slowly is we're releasing the attachment in this way, the fusion, the identification because the Buddha seemed to have said on and on and on again, I talk about this because that's where suffering lies. In the identification, it comes with stress. If you're identified with something, anything, if you make it yours and you are, you know, something of that nature, maybe not immediately, but at some point, you know, It'll change, and you'll be confused about that. You'll have to do some w- inner work there. It's better to start early, to actually pay attention when you're when things are going well, to actually start to say, "Is that really mine? Is that really mine, or is that something that is passing?" And the most convincing way, the actual, the only way, if you think about this. This will crack your brain, says one teacher. <laughs> it's not to be thought about because it's counterintuitive, because it's it's to be felt. It's insight. That's what we call insight. Coming closer, so close to experience with such a stable mind that the truth will be revealed about this, that this was never yours. It might be there. It might endure. It might seem that it's accessible, available, But it's not yours absolutely forever. None, n- not, not one thing whatsoever. So how do we manage with that? Tell me more. <laughs> What, how do we manage with that? How? how do we manage with that constant changing Fluidity, mine, not mine, yours, not yours. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. am, I'm not. <laughs> 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 that's yeah, maybe that, yeah, so that's, that's the practice there. But it's known to be very, very progressive, like very, it's step by step. Especially, as I was saying in one group, when there's been built in the mind a lot, a lot of uh, benevolence, Then the actual experience of finding out that this was not mine or that will is is mine relatively for a little while only, you know, is, is uh, when there's a lot of benevolence, it's actually much easier to release stuff, you know. So we want to cultivate a lot of care, which is what we're trying to do here, so that with the insight, the insight will happen in a field of care, you know. So it's going to be a 
happy release. It's going to be a joyful release or a freeing release. Yeah. So the kind of the arc of what is happening, to use another language here, would be... Uh, so there's a... Uh, there's a when a child is born, there's a pre-egotic, egoic, egoic, egoic state. You know, the child doesn't know he's separate from the mom. You know, when we with good parenting, this is my arm, this is your arm. This, no, this is not your toy. It's the Nicholas toy. <laughs> and we start to like learn what is mine, what is not mine. And at some point, we have an ego. It's good that it's a healthy one. You know, we have to make it a healthy one so we know the boundaries. We can say, this is my body, this is not yours. I decide who touches it and, you know, all this. And so we, so this, but that's not the end. That's actually the beginning of the spiritual path. Then the spiritual path opens when I have a healthy ego or somewhat functioning ego. That would be good, good enough. <laughs> then we start to question, was it really mine? That's like the trans-egoic part. This is the field we're entering here. And so it's not going back to pre-egoic, where like I'm, you know, just presence, you know. And it's not like this, this discernment. Because I can actually go in the conventional reality and say, this is my car, you know, I'm not confused like a baby would be. You know? I know this is my car and this is your car. Yours the blue one, mine is the red one, <laughs> you know, and I can tell you my actually where I live, and I can get there and enter in the right apartment, you know. So I'm functioning in this way, but I'm not absolutely confused about things. I I I'm not stuck thinking it's really me or mine, which is not a full development of a human being. There, do you see this a little bit? How this can be? So somebody asked the Buddha why. Do you still say I? I'm curious about this with all this teaching, you know. That might be your question to the Buddha. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Do you still say I or not? <laughs> How do you hold that? And the Buddha says, I say I, but I know the limit of that language. I understand that when I say my health, it's not my health, it's health. And it's worth taking care of it, you know, and it won't stay, you know. It will change, no matter. It will change. And it was not mine totally, you know. It was life happening, you know. And so giving back to life what belongs to it. But being able to uh, to play in the conventional realm so I'm not confused and I don't need to be helped with everything, you know. And so as one of uh, a teacher I I, a friend of mine and colleague, Tempo Smith, um, he was saying this this summer. I really enjoyed it. We were with um, 50 practitioners for 10 days, and they were old practitioners, not old, but experienced practitioners. So many of them had practiced for many years in this tradition. So they knew this. Uh, they had done this kind of particular research. It's, uh, and so Tempo was always coming back with um, saying, let let the eyeing and the myeing be a light organization of the world. It's actually very functional. It's a really good device. It's a good way to organize the world. But don't buy into it so much. Don't make it so much me or my. Let it be an organization so I can say, oh, I'll meet you 
at this place. It's, it's a good way to organize the world. You know? But don't fall into believing completely that this is yours or, or uh, you. Today in a group I was saying, imagine the case where, uh, and I might have said this here before, a cruel thought crosses this mind, this or this one. If there's identification, it means you're a cruel person. Is this problematic for you? Mm-hmm. It would be for me. Because then I'm like, I can enter a debate. No, I'm not cruel. Yes, you're cruel. You just had that cruel thought. No, I'm not cruel. Please, don't believe. You know, and it's, it's draining, you know. And what the uh, kind of other version that we're building here, slowly restructuring the mind and understanding of the world to have a wise understanding in Buddhism, as opposed to a false understanding or confusing or stressful uh, understanding, the wise understanding suddenly is about discernment. It's about wisdom. What is beneficial, what is not? So a cruel thought arises. It's not seen through the eyes of me or mine or not me. Not me, me, not me. It's seen through the eyes of, is this helpful? Is this going to lead to freedom or entanglement, to trouble? in my relationships or not, you know? And then there's just this recognition. This thought is not a useful thought. The Buddha put it very, very simply. He said, at some point in my practice, I made two piles. I like this teaching. It seems so simple. Two piles. One pile of thoughts that were unhelpful, not leading forward, not liberating. And one pile of thoughts and intentions that were helpful, beneficial, uh, onward leading, liberating. And I started to live my life by abandoning thoughts that belong to the first pile and nurturing thoughts that belong to the second one. And so it's not, it removes the glasses of me and I. That's not so important. The important is that there is suffering and there are things that are helpful to liberate the mind and things that are not helpful. And can we clarify that? to go more deeply into exactly that because I think the fear, as you say, when you address the idea of this letting go or this, this ephemerality, it can be very scary for me. Yeah. Um, at times at times it's liberating and at times it's horrifying. Yeah. Um, and the the ephemerality is equally true perhaps or of those those benevolent thoughts. Yeah. But you're, you're still choosing to maybe, I don't want to say identify with them, but stay with them yeah. more than with the others. So yeah. The Buddha said, I teach only one thing. And then he says two things, but he says, I teach only one thing. He says, I I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And that's all I'm interested in. Benevolent thoughts in the Buddhist psychology are always helpful, never uh, unhelpful. And so this is why we would rely on them. And they're impermanent. But they're more helpful than the other version, you know? And so, and one clarifies this for oneself, you know? And again, 
we have to be careful because our idea of benevolence might not be exactly what benevolence is, you know, in, in action felt is. Do you see what I mean? Because I might have the idea, oh, I want to be a benevolent person, so I have to be nice. So now I'll be stuck being nice, I'll be nice, and I'll be, you know. But this, it requires a little bit more exploration and to find out that actually benevolent has many faces. It has the faces of putting clear boundaries, of saying no, you know. This is very benevolent. Yeah, and we have to clarify this deeply for ourselves. And the idea of ephemerality, it's, it's not the experience of ephemerality, I think, that is stressful. It's the idea in shock with what I would want, you know. The shock with me wanting to this to last, you know, and expecting this to last and wishing this to last, the idea of ephemerality is very stressful. But you live in it like I do and we all do, it's never been anything else than that, you know, and we've lived in it. And so now we're coming closer to what it is. So I'll continue just a little bit uh, on this. So just telling you a story that might illustrate a bit of the letting go of the identification. There's a, I, Some of you might know Joanna Macy. She's an activist, Buddhist scholar and a meditation teacher. So she created many, many... Uh, exercises and things to actually uh, explore our relationship with the world and uh, the notion of self. She has a book called, uh, uh, amongst other, one of her book is uh, uh, Earth as Lover, Earth as Self. And so she's suggesting in her, some of her work that uh, the sense of self that we have uh, built is a uh, is, is, uh, almost like a capitalistic sense of self. It's a self that is a consumer self. It lasts 80 years. You know, this is the new... It's me, the time that I can buy stuff. <laughs> and I'm upset about that, that version. That's interesting, I think, as a thought, you know. And she said, actually, in different cultures, at different times, there was a different self, sense of self, a sense of self as the tribe, a sense of self as self in land, in the land, you know. A sense of, and she says, you know, uh, teaching to activists, she'll say, when you're actually talking to uh, elected official, maybe, or to things like this, people like this, about the earth and protecting the earth, don't talk from your small self. This is way, like you're against big machinery, you know, big things, institutions and stuff. It's too small. Talk from your real self. You have like, I'm not good with the story of the planet, but you are like four billion years. You know, you talk from that space. From you're the you're the planet conscious. Have a, a little bit wider, deep time. You know, instead of consumer time. You know, allow your sense of time to be. So she's presenting another self. So we see in this that there's perception happening. We've been trained, conditioned to see the self in a certain way, to experience life through a certain self. And she's questioning this. So one of the ways she do this that is actually kind of fun and touching is uh, the dance to dismember the ego. And so this comes from the Tibetan uh, practice uh, and uh, in the Ta Tashi Jong, I think, uh, uh, refugee camp, uh, Tibetan uh, village, or town in the north of India, they do a, a ritual once in a while where 
they, the whole community comes in a circle, and in the middle of the circle, they'll put um, a little uh, kind of a puppet or a doll made of clay with uh, three walls around it. The three walls represent confusion that creates the ego. The doll represents the ego, the kind of notion of self, belief in a certain particular self. And confusion, greed, I want, I want to become, I want to be seen like this, you know, that kind of strong desire to be, to become, or even to not exist that we have sometimes. I hate this self, I don't want it to exist, same thing. Uh, or hatred, I don't want this. I, yeah. And so, and then the monks, maybe nuns, the monastics, will take different implements, props, And they'll start dancing around the doll, embodying qualities of mind that we're developing here. Courage, uh, honesty, clear-seeing, benevolence, compassion. And they'll move around, embodying these, these uh, qualities of mind. And at the end, somebody will grab the ego doll and will crush it like this in the wind. And maybe even eat it to represent the transformation. Like, it's not actually bad. It's something that you can actually eat and be nurtured by in some way. And so that's the, the thing. It's pretty dramatic, right? And so, Joanna made, created an exercise that Westerners, maybe amongst others, can do. And I do that sometimes with people. You can imagine after a retreat... This is five. Imagine a 10-day retreat or a six-weeks retreat of actually sitting and soaking in the different mind states that we have and different patterns of mind. And at the end, everybody's give, given a little bit of clay and they're given a little time. Uh, it looks to many like art therapy, which I think it is. And so you go in your corner. When I do it, uh, in the past at least, I would bring a lot of like arts and craft things, you know, feathers and... <coughs> curb, pipe cleaners, you know, whatever you find, buttons and things. And people will go and they actually create a puppet or a sculpture representing the patterns they have seen and that they identified with. I'm so agitated. I'm so resentful all the time. I'm so judgmental. I'm so whatever they identify with. And they, so they'll create and that they maybe don't identify with so much. Anymore, Maybe this uh, becoming a little bit of like, oh, I'm not duped so much. I know this thing happens. It's been happening. It happens repetitively or regularly. It's not actually me. It's been ingrained there by conditioning, family, education, society, culture, events, and conclusion about events that happen, you know. And so at the end, we gather together. And we could, you know, it's something we could do around here, maybe. We want, but we like that's something we could imagine doing, gathering in a circle, and then people come and they present their ego puppet, and the idea is that we're actually going to celebrate this. We're going to see it fully because it wants to be seen. This is what we do in mindfulness. We actually recognize the pattern. We feel it. We get to know it really well, and at some point, maybe it. It's not useful anymore. Or, 
or we don't identify with it. We can acknowledge it. If it's a beautiful pattern, we can nurture it, but we don't define ourselves by it. You know, like generosity can be there, it's useful, it's beautiful, it's connective, let's uh, foster it. But I don't have to fear, am I really generous? Do everybody think I'm generous? You know, it's generosity. And so people come and they they come and they start describing this. And uh, in the circle, what we're um, invited to do is to actually uh, be in awe. And so somebody will come like, look at this ego of mine with all this past hanging stories. You know, I carry all these rocks, this ego. And we're like, oh my God, amazing ego. It's huge. I want one like that. Don't let go of the rocks. Carry the rocks, you know. And the next one will come and they'll say, look, it's this little moi and it's hiding in this little cage. It's staying hidden and it's judging the outside and it's safe in the cage. Stay in the cage. Don't come out. Don't come out, you know. I want the cage. I want the cage. (laughs) I want that ego, you know. And trying to remember because I've seen so many and it's amazing if you have a sometimes there's a hundred people in the retreat and they do that and after you have you have a kind of a archaeo- uh, a, a museum of uh, not archaeology but yeah maybe but uh, also uh, yeah archetypes yeah why not yeah archetypes that's what it is and so you, you you travel and you look at these before people present them and it's so interesting the formation there's a lot of joy and love in that and there's uh, you know I mean it's probably very rich the rapport people have with that but when they present it it's amazing and often what surprises me is that people who are extremely introvert not extrovert like me but introverted in the circle sometimes they'll come first before everybody else and they're like look at me and then suddenly they <laughs> A kind of another being comes out, another like archetype or the clown in them or something. They come out, you know, and they, and uh, I remember seeing somebody and they came in and they say, you couldn't see there was a character hidden underneath there, but there was like many, many kind of rubens, rubens, rubens on top of all colors. And they were like, this is moi. You can't see the, the essence of, you can't see, you can't reach me because... I'm a PhD in this. I've sat so many retreats. And I've been this. And I've started that foundation. And I'm this in life. And I'm a PhD in this. And I'm a, you know, I have all these beautiful children. And some of them are studying psychology at the university. And others <laughs> are doing their master in this and that. You know, and you're like, it was so sweet that the person could recognize this, their pattern of how they promote themselves or hide themselves or defend themselves like how they create the kind of self, and actually know that it's not exactly them. You know, it's just a pattern that is there. Either a way to relate to the world, or patterns inside oneself that are active. And they, they've been they're there to, to try to help things move along, you know, and survive, you know. And with this practice, we learn to actually dissociate in a positive way, diffused, not being in fusion, with these patterns, but recognize, oh, there's this pattern. There's this way of thinking that keeps coming back. It's going to turn ugly. Watch out. Watch out. You know? Or whatever else pattern is. You know? So that's one way to actually uh, let go of this.
So what really matters? <laughs> what really matters? What really matters, if I go back to the Buddha, is that there is suffering, and there's the, there's the possibility of suffering. It's possible to remove, it's extra. That's the teaching of the Buddha. Not the, not the pain like the physical pain. You know, the Buddha had a bad foot, he had a bad back. Sometimes he couldn't finish his teaching because the back was hurting so much. He would say, Ananda, please finish the teaching. So not that, but the why me. The This always happens to me. The what are they going to think? The I don't want this, I want something else. All this the Buddha called the second arrow. arrow. And he says this is absolutely extra. We can do without this. But you can't actually really buy this on the internet, you know, removal of the second arrow. You, know? <laughs> you actually have to sit, you have to sit with the arrow and actually learn about the ouch and lose the fascination with, as in one text it says, like, oh, who planted the arrow? When was it planted? What kind of wood is it? You know, <laughs> etc. Like, just feel the ouch, feel the ouch, pay attention, pay attention, you know, and you'll, in the paying attention, you'll learn that this is extra. You'll, you'll, you'll find out that it's not, you can do without that. And that's going to be for your benefit and the benefit of others around you also. One of the there's one Zen teacher. She uh, I was saying this to a group yesterday, and I I think it had a positive impact <laughs> on some of us. So one 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 of the Zen teacher she describes this creation of the self as uh, it's her experience, but she said she describes it as this the this turd at the center of the universe. And she said, it's so interesting that you would create a self, but instead of creating a beautiful one, you create a hateful one. And then you're fascinated by it, you're totally enamored with it, you think about it, you, and, and, and you hate it. You, know, you judge it, you, you know, so I, you, there's a creation. So there, the puppet of this teacher, would, they would come with, this is moi, the turd at the center of the universe. <laughs> You know, they do everything wrong, and they—that's <laughs> a particular kind of of uh, self that we've created, you know. And then we, as a group, we go, "Oh my God, I have one like this too." Oh my, mine, mine is not that <laughs> <laughs> that well built, you know. <laughs> mine is not that smelly. I want a smelly one like that. That's really worthy of hatred. <laughs> And so that's a kind of a, a humorous way to talk about what we're doing here. But by paying attention, we're going to notice that uh, things arise out of conditions. They're not always active. They're active when, whoops, suddenly there's this activation for some reason. And then we s learn to either hold this in compassion or smile at this and to take it less and less personal, but to take care of it. So it's this middle path. We're not going in the extreme of uh, identification. It's me, it's my fault, or it's me, grand me, and, you know. And we're not going in the extreme of irresponsibility. 
and, or denial or avoidance or we're going in a fine line in the bit in between in this very fine line the middle path fine line of caring holding taking responsibility like not responsible in the sense of guilty or but responsible this is actually happening it needs to be taken care of it needs to be celebrated acknowledge the beauty of this or this needs to be accompanied towards the exit it's not useful anymore you know without falling into the hatred or the clinging but just acknowledging this as a reason let me take care of that yeah we'll finish with this because we're it's time for the meal yeah go ahead okay. um, being here is one thing, being back in the world is, there's a lot of indulging the drama in the second era. What is the relationship to others? And being with all of that suffering, self-imposed and other ones. Yeah. So... It's a big question. It's probably the practice of a lifetime. And one quick answer would be, I think one will need to develop an, a certain amount of equanimity. You know, allowing... I, I don't know if I'm hearing your question right, but allowing for others to be confused. It's a confusing world. I'm confused myself. You know, So, not trying to fix, not judging. The same qualities we develop here are going to be helpful outside in any situation. A little caring, a little calm, a little curiosity, you know, none, a mind that is non-judgmental, non-reactive, that doesn't get, you know, that's, you know, pays it honest, compassionate. That's going to be really useful. So this is the field we're in here in this form, but it's not outside of the world here. It is the world, you know. Okay, so let's that be the teaching. Let's take maybe just a moment to um, let the words uh, settle down. We learn to um, abandon this uh, inner battle of mine, not mine, I want it, I don't want it, and learn to care for what's happening. 
and take good care of what's happening. May we find a deep freedom so that we can offer also to others their freedom and at least protection from our confusion. So this might raise in you more questions than answers. Be careful not to go in the thinking mind, which is not what we value here so much, but uh, an attentive awareness that will reveal uh, this stuff, maybe in its own way, naturally. That's the path of the Buddha, anyway. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.